can you hear me okay? Is that okay, about that far from the microphone? Can you understand me? You may have noticed I have a slight dialect ac you know, accent. I'm from Liverpool, uh, which of course is the center of the universe. And uh, actually, I live in the south now, but there we go. I am an alien. Uh, it's great to be amongst you here today in this beautiful weather. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, I've done a couple of seminars over a couple of weeks recently in New Wine, and it rained on a Noah level. The rain, the rain was un it was nearly breaking the tents. So God clearly loves you far more than evangelical Anglicans. And I hope that's not been recorded. So wonderful. Um, what we're going to do here, just, just a quick backdrop on me. I'm from Liverpool. I'm married to Valeria, uh, who's an American, but you know, you can get prayer for that. And uh, sorry, I'll, I'll get that later. Um, and uh, we live near Bedford. I work in London for the Evangelical Alliance doing the advocacy work, which is about voice, giving evangelicals voice in society, in politics, in the media, in as many ways as we can. So representing the voice of evangelical Christians in that way and trying to enhance the voice of evangelical Christians as well to equip the church to do this stuff wherever the church is. Does that make sense? That's what it means. Okay. Today, the talk title, you know, speaking truth in a post-truth world. Well, I was thinking, how, how do I uh, engage with this? I started flicking through the Bible a way back, you'll be glad to hear, and it seems to me that God's got an awful lot to say about truth. It's really, really important to God. So I've probably overloaded this talk a little bit with Scripture. Um, if you've got a pen and paper, it might be worth keeping it out if there's anything that comes to mind. We'll try and get some time for questions at the end, and Howard will facilitate that. Uh, we did have PowerPoints planned, but because of a technical issue, I'm not able to use them. So there are certain points in this talk that might not make too much sense, and I'll stop, and I'll try and qualify things. Is that okay? Okay, wonderful. Nod and smile at me constantly throughout. I need it. So what is truth? Well, what I'll look at is what is truth? what's happening to truth today, uh, or what do we think is happening to truth, and what might be a Christian response or set of responses to this post-truth phenomenon, as we're calling it. Okay, let's start with the dictionary definition. What is a dictionary definition of truth? Although, just to say, dictionary definitions are now being contested. We were talking this morning about there's a gay rights group that are complaining about Collins want to change the dictionary definition of a woman to include the possibility of it being a man. And the gay rights group are very vociferous in opposing this because it causes all sorts of problems. And I'll come to that a little bit lot down the line, but we shouldn't trust dictionaries in a post-truth world probably, but here we go. So truth is the quality or state of being true, that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. So the truth is the way, we, the way things really are and what's right. That's what the truth is, the way things really are and are what's right. And we discover truth by two main ways, uh, reason and revelation. Reason, and this relates to what's called the correspondence theory of truth. Truth is what corresponds to reality. If I um, plug myself into this electrical cable, the reality will be I will be given an electric shock. Truth corresponds with reality. Gravity is a great way of discerning truth by reason. If I jump off a building, the reality is I will hit the floor fast. It's very important, and it's a biblical, it's a biblical way of looking at things as well. And this relates to uh, practical experience of reality. We, we develop our truth from what we learn, what we experience, and scientific observation and things like that. Reason, we should understand this, is a gift from God. It's important for discerning truth. John Milton, a hero of mine, uh, the poet, argued that if someone thinks something is true simply because he's been told it's true, then it isn't really truth in a meaningful sense. He wrote this. He said, quote, If a man believe things only because his pastor says so or the assembly so determines, without knowing other reason, then though his belief be true, the very truth he holds becomes a heresy. Why? because he has gladly posted off to another the charge and care of his beliefs and view of the world. That is, 
he has outsourced his own moral universe to a higher authority. His belief in truth is passive and childish. Truth has been given to him, not discovered or learned by him. So the, reason, the reasoning of truth is really valid, uh, but it's not enough if we want to know the moral purpose, the meaning of stuff, what's ultimately right or wrong. For that, we need, we need more. Philo philosophy grapples with this kind of truth stuff and these questions, but it's limited to human knowledge and speculation. For what C.S. Lewis called the deeper truths, why things are the way they are, we need revelation. And for Christians, we see and know truth in light of God's truth, his revealed truth. And this happens in three ways, primarily. The Word of God, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. And I'll just work through these quickly. 2 Samuel 7 um, says, Lord God, you are God and your words are true. Isaiah says, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. The book of Proverbs calls for God's people to have truthful lips and be truthful witnesses. And Psalm 23 calls for God's people to buy the truth and not sell it. I love that. Buy the truth and not sell it. That's the value that God places on it. Psalm 25 says, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. In Psalm 119, David prayed, never take your word of truth from my mouth. And then in John 17, Jesus prayed for us, saying, sanctify them, us, by your truth. Your word is truth. So what God says is true. That's specific revelation. And is truth. And that's general uh, revelation. That's wisdom. That's reality. So truth is from God and truth also guides us to God and truth guides us in the will of God. So you can see why it's important to God. Truth is from God, it guides us to God and it guides us in his will. Second one, and I would have some wonderful snazzy bullet points up on a PowerPoint at this uh, point, but I haven't, sorry. The second one is the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. This suggests that it may not be possible to receive the full truth about anything without it being revealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, that might be some sort of theological dispute you can all have amongst yourselves later on but it clearly means the Holy Spirit is absolutely central to the revelation of truth. Jesus, here we go. <laughs> Jesus is always the problem as well as the answer, uh, I find. Um, in John 18, when questioned by Pilate, Jesus answered, uh, you say that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. Wow, what is truth? And well, in John 1, we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who became, who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And this in itself, I think, is pretty amazing that the word becomes flesh. But then Jesus says this about himself in John 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Which means that in Jesus, we see how God's truth, his word, as Howard said earlier, becomes a person, became a person, is a person. I mean, wow, what do we do with that? Where do we start with that? It kind of makes a big, it's a big problem for the correspondence theory of truth, which is still valid, but you've got a person here as the truth, as truth. I mean, one thing we could say about it is that it means the closer and more intimate we are with Jesus, the closer we will be to the truth about life, the universe, and everything. If Jesus is the truth, then that's a truth. Is this okay up to now? A quick skip through of some other biblical uh, principles about the truth, and I won't give the references here. These are just points that I just wanted to emphasize before we move on. 
about the truth. The truth is liberating. The truth sets people free from lies and error. Truth is just. It corrects and sets things right. Truth is beautiful. It inspires people. Truth is uncomfortable for those in untruth, the liars. Truth costs. We often pay for it with relational discomfort and embarrassment, with social alienation and exclusion, and even with ridicule and rejection. That's what the truth can bring you. Truth can hurt. It often does, and without grace and wisdom, it can be brutal. It can be a weapon. Truth prevails. It will always ultimately be seen and be done. Truth is essential. We can't really live well or fully without it. We can't flourish. Truth is powerful. It makes things happen. And truth is dangerous. It's always threatened power, supported power, and be being used and abused by powerful people throughout history. And then also related to that, truth can be corrupted, distorted, bent, bending the truth. That's an amazing term, that isn't it? Bending the truth, uh, which brings us to what's happening today. So that's the, the sort of biblical view of truth. You know, we, there's, there's reason, there's revelation, there's the Bible, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's the person of Jesus. So what's happening to truth today? In 2016, the word post-truth entered the Oxford Dictionary, even though, uh, ironically, post-truth is two words, uh, which is kind of a bit funny, I think. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Humored me, anyway. It happened because uh, it was being used so much. Post-truth was in the news all the time. Why was it in the news? Well, I think after years of political spin, after exaggeration, bias, propaganda in the media and in politics, we had the EU referendum and the US election campaigns. These events, they kind of opened the lid on things. They made it more appealing uh, for people to openly question the accounts of reality presented by their opponents. Uh, and this is especially easy on new social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Here, on new social media, online cynicism is sustained by echo chambers, places in which people are increasingly exposed to those with similar views. And when they account, encounter the views of others they, who disagree, they just can't handle it. And this is one of the sources of post-truth. Upset and offended, they simply reject the possibility that their own truth regime might be flawed, uh, might be wrong, and they just denounce the alternative as a lie, as post-truth. And all of this is happening in a context whereby we have technologies now deployed to divide and rule society, to manage mindsets. We have algorithms being created that are very, can very subtly move political consciousness from one thing to another. This has never happened before in human history. We actually have the ability to manipulate the way people think globally. Think about that. It's, it's incredible, really. So we have a growing counterculture to this as well. And, and this week, we had Google embracing censorship in, as part of this post-truth world. And what we have as a result of all of this, or probably connected into it, is a culture war. You've heard the term culture war. We, we are in a culture war in the West in many ways. We have things like climate change denial, Holocaust denial, Syrian uh, war news distrust. People just don't believe the news that's coming out of Syria quite often. Russian interference in elections. Did that happen? How did that happen? To what extent did that happen? Nobody really knows. Experts are far less trusted today than they used to be. It's very difficult in, in the context we're in now for pollsters to call anything, if you noticed. I mean, they're very shy about predicting elections uh, because they don't really know where it's going to run. And science. Science is increasingly discredited, especially when Richard Dawkins opens his mouth. And then we've got the alt-right and the alt-left, these more extreme ends of the political spectrum that are briefing against each other and trying to undercut each other constantly, particularly online. So we have alternative facts and we have the phenomenon of fake news. You know, alongside, we do have fake news, but alongside media bias, it's got to be said that what we also have that I think has an effect on the idea of post-truth is just poor journalism. Some of the journalism today is just terrible. They just don't tell you what's happening. You, you hear a news report and you think, 
I've got basically about a quarter of the information that I need on this, so that's always also a factor. But the key point uh, in relation to post-truth is this. As there's been this convergence between information and entertainment, and there really has been that, people today are confusing opinions with knowledge and desires with facts. Let me repeat that. People today are confusing opinions with knowledge and desires with facts. It's all a bit of a mess. And perhaps one of the greatest ironies of our time is that in the drive to expose fake news, we now have new forms of censorship that are directly threatening everyone's freedoms. We've seen this this week with Google. So despite all of this as well, I would add this caveat to your notes uh, about truth. It's worth it's worth noting that nothing is actually happening to truth. It hasn't changed. It can't change because truth is truth by definition. Now, you can challenge the definition and we can have a long rambling conversation about social constructivism in the postmodern turn. But, well, maybe we'll do that in the questions. But truth hasn't changed. Truth cannot change because truth is truth. Okay. It's just that some ideas about truth in some parts of the rights-based Western self-focused world, they've changed. So when we hear the word post-truth, we should remember that what, we're what it often really means is, I disagree with this. It means, I feel offended by that view. This is too uncomfortable for me. I can't face this stuff. I don't like what's being said. It's too complicated. It can't be that simple. It's a conspiracy. And that's the kind of mindset that speaks the post-truth language. We had a whole raft of post-truth books. I think two of the main ones were released on the same day because the publishers were in a big you know, uh, race with each other to get, the, get one out first, and they ended up being sort of published on the same day, which suggests that a load of this is a load of baloney. Psychologists call this denial of reality cognitive dissonance. And this cognitive dissonance happens when people require alternative realities to address inconsistencies in their own worldview. For example, someone says, I know the world is flat, but I, sh I see ships sailing over the horizon. So they think, ah, not that the world is round, but it must be an optical illusion. The world must be flat, but human eyesight must you know, do this to objects at a certain distance. And that's actually the way people thought about the world being flat before it was discovered that it was round, which the Bible says way back, by the way. But that's cognitive dissonance. How did we get here? Well, again, you're missing a wonderful PowerPoint here. Actually, we'll make the PowerPoint slides available afterwards if you want to uh, dip through them and line them up with your notes. In the journey to this post-truth world, we have to talk about isms. Now, you're going to have to indulge me here. I live in isms. I talk, I am Dave Ism, right? I, I mean, I, I just live in the world of ideologies, and, and, and there you go. I've made me apology. There are loads of these isms today that are interdependent, that are, that are interrela interrelated, that are fusing together to devastating effect in public life. And I'll just run through a few of them today. The first ism is secularism, also known as godlessness. This is the idea that the public life um, should just be a non-religious space and religious people should just ha just enjoy their private pursuit in, uh, of a weekend in Gothic refrigerators with average age deceased. That's the, the secular view of the, public, uh, of the public world. And it's perpetuated by this thing called the, the myth of secular neutrality, which is a myth. The idea that everything secular is somehow morally, objectively neutral, while everything else, the religious stuff, well, that comes, that brings, that's freighted with bias and worldview. So we need to keep that out of public debate, which takes you about a nanosecond to, you know, to see right through as a complete load of nonsense. Secularism favors and disfavors some groups and ideas. Uh, it is a, a set of ideologies in and of itself. The second ism, progressivism, and I've written extensively on this. This is my hobby horse. The idea of progress, human progress, which is a copy of the teleology of the kingdom of God. The idea that we are going somewhere and it's better. 
Secularism doesn't have this, so it's copied it off the church. And John Gray, the uh, LSE professor, has written brilliantly on this, and he's not a Christian. This is the idea that um, today is better than yesterday, just because it's today and we are inexorably, inevitably moving forward. Therefore, everything must change in line with certain groups' ideas of progress, okay? That ism is fueling post-truth. Liberalism, and I'm not talking about the classic philosophy of liberalism, which was actually created by nonconformist evangelicals. But this is, this is the myth that there should be limits to everything in public life except freedom. That should be completely unlimited. And let me tell you, when you're dealing with public policy uh, and parliament, whenever we deal with anything that's about liberty or liberalism, it's incredibly difficult today to make a case against it because people believe that freedom should not be curtailed at any level for anyone, which again is utter nonsense. We can't live without parameters for anything. Okay, and isn't it funny that, um, you know, in, a, in our society, the more freedoms we desire, the more laws we require. Have you ever thought about that? So we, we need more laws to help us to be free. That doesn't make sense to me. The next ism is sexualism. This is the idea that sexual choice and gratification is the greatest and most important freedom and that we are progressing away from our biological fixations and realities into new forms of expression. And I'll come to that again in a minute. The next ism, I told you there was a few, there's only six, we're nearly there, is relativism. And this is the idea that truth is simply relative, that everything is just socially constructive, that objective truth is an illusion, and that things are really subjective, which but that in itself is an objective truth claim, but let's not go there. It, the poet John, John Dominic Crossan summarizes uh, life today perfectly in relation to relativism like this. He says, today, there is no lighthouse keeper. There is no lighthouse. There is no dry ground. There are only people living on rafts made from their own imaginations, and there's the sea. Poets always nail it, don't they? I mean. That is absolutely a perfect summary of a relativistic post-truth world. And this has given us a certain set of crises, crises of identity, crises of meaning and purpose, crises of leadership, crises of trust. And it's happened because as the former uh, chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs observed, without truth, there can be no honesty. Without honesty, there can be no trust. And without trust, there can be no communication. Shall I repeat that? He is rather good, the, the ex-chief rabbi. Um, without truth, there can be no honesty. Without honesty, there can be no trust. And without trust, there can be no communication. And we could add to that, it, without communication, you don't have a society. You just have a set of individuals all going after their own thing. The last ism, and you might be surprised by this, fascism. I'm not talking about Benito Mussolini. Um, I'm talking about liberal fascism, authoritarianism. The idea that it's legitimate to legally and coercively enforce a worldview, to control society, and to banish dissent, to bully. And for a good example of this, think of what happened to Tim Farron. You might disagree with how Tim handled things, I do, but he was bullied out of his position. Um, Pope Benedict described our situation in relation to fascism like this. He said, we are moving towards a dictatorship of relativism which does not recognize anything as for certain and which has as its highest goal one's own ego and one's own desires. In education, the combination of these isms is devastating, uh, devastating for truth particularly in higher education, where there's now no, in humanities anyway, there's no quest for truth anymore. There is no quest for truth. And the people are quite open about the fact that there's no quest for truth. These is, this is where lies are now being weaponized and where we have the liberal fascism of identity politics. On university campuses across the Western world, this form of politics is seeking to silence any views that are contrary to an ever-narrowing, increasingly illiberal, liberal worldview. These so-called liberals 
aggressively pursue censorship of any views that they find disagreeable. And most notably, this is in relation to gay and trans rights, racial strife, radical feminism, gender fluidity. And the game here is virtue signaling, trigger warnings, no platforming, safe spaces, microaggressions, cultural appropriation, and intersectionality. Don't ask what that is, please. And of this phenomenon, Brendan O'Neill has observed that and this is a great quote, it's worth reading. He said, the prejudices of the 21st century elites are being reimagined as truths that may not be contested freely. That is, they are being turned into dogmas and put beyond open, unstigmatized public discussion. They are dead dogmas, not living truths. Perfect. Perfect summary of what's happening. But if we want to know why it's happening, uh, I would suggest that we need to look no further than Romans chapter 1. I'll read a couple, few clips from this now. Howard was telling me that Andrew Wilson's done a study here on Romans, which I've missed, and I must get the tape to, because I'm sure he totally nailed all of this. Romans chapter 1, just, just a few verses. Number 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 21, their thinking became futile, their, their, hearts were their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Please be encouraged to read that whole chapter in full in relation to any notes you make today because I actually think God uh, nails it far better than I ever will. So idolatry, abandoning God's truth for a lie, brings immorality, sexual impurity, and there's, this me means there's a clear link socially in the Bible between truth and sex. You didn't think I was going to talk about sex today, did you? Well, I am, a little bit. And it explains why, you know, not as the BBC would portray it, that Christians are obsessed with sex. It's more that the liberal secular media are really obsessed with what Christians think about sex. They just can't deal with what we think about it. So Romans 1 concludes with this. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. When David Cameron undemocratically redefined marriage, he, he, what he'd done is he instituted a whole new social orthodoxy, a whole new regime of truth, which the state is now legally and coercively obl obliged to promote and you know, enforce. It's, it is obliged to do this now. So de facto, it's seeking to silence any dissent to this new regime of truth. Consequently, if we follow the gods of the Bible, whether a Catholic Protestant, charismatic conservative, or as I said to a group of Catholic cardinals recently in Strasbourg, I said, praise God, we're all heretics now. They really enjoyed that. You know, we're all heretics now. Marriage redefinition is really important in relation to post-truth. It's a fact that the law has changed, but it's a fiction that it has changed into. And though it and through it, truth has been discredited. And please understand that although we need to acknowledge that the law has changed and we need to respect the fact that the law has changed, we don't need to approve of that change. Indeed, we should not approve of that change. That's what it means to live in a free society. A free society is a place where you have different views and they can be expressed. The Evangelical Alliance is presently dealing with a whole range of policy challenges that relate to those isms I spoke about earlier, the collision of all those ism, isms and the redefinition of marriage, which is produced by them. And the, the public policy stuff that we're dealing with includes things like sex and relationships education proposals. And this is about normalizing a new truth regime and directly challenging parental authority in the home and also directly challenging freedom of religion and religious identity in society as well, by the way. And then we've got transgender equality, extending the new truth regime by allowing people to self-define their own gender identity, even if even non-gender, non non-binary identity. 
And alongside this, we have governments, uh, a government attempting to deal with terrorism and radicalization by develop developing a concept of non-violent extremism in order to regulate what's taught in Sunday schools and youth groups and by extension all churches. Just, just pinch yourself at this moment. As a response to terrorism and radicalization, we have proposals to create a category of non-violent extremism uh, and th this regulation of out-of-school settings, right, to regulate what is taught in Sunday schools in the UK. Unbelievable? Yeah, entirely unbelievable, but, but true, sadly. <laughs> Welcome to my world. This is a world where fact and fiction collide. It's a world where government can legislate for a lie of a man calling himself a woman and a woman calling herself a man, or even a man or a woman being able to deny that that category even exists or that the categories are oppressive in some way. So you can forget about um, the gender pay gap here or feminism or even gay rights because if, if gender is a choice, then there's no gay people. There are no gay rights, there are no feminists, there are no women's studies, colleges, organizations, support groups. They don't exist. Is this okay? Okay. Falsity is, as uh, Aristotle put it, to say of what is that is not, or of what is not that is. And that's exactly what gender ideologues want us to do. These individuals want everyone to participate in a great offense against the truth, a great lie. A woman is not and cannot be a man and vice versa. And, and this is why sex change language wasn't recognized in law and terms like gender reassignment had to be used because it's legally, scientifically proven a man cannot become a woman. This is a chromosomal, genetic, biological fact of life. Marriage cannot be between two people of the same sex because no matter how many laws are created to enforce and affirm it, marriage is and always will be between a man and a woman. This predates Christianity and is a covenant for a union based on ideology. In an article recently uh, for an American journal called Public Discourse entitled Hiding from the Sun, that's S-U-N, uh, Gender Ideology's Attack on Truth, uh, Gerard Mundy wrote this. Quote, the truth will always prevail in the end, but what does not prevent damage from being done in the, but what does not prevent damage from being done it, but that does not prevent damage from being done in the meantime. When society is not in accord with the truth, a dark void is created, covering the light of truth and extending a welcoming invitation to the evil that dwells in darkness. In such a society, the many are destined to lead disordered, confused lives controlled and manipulated by those who capitalize on their confusion and ignorance of the truth. The Bible says it like this, when sin's not identified and addressed in society. Isaiah 59, 14 says this, justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. That's where we are today. That's what's happening today. As secularism, this godlessness and the idolatries, these other isms, these false gods around it have increased. Truth and the value of truth has decreased. And that's essentially what we're, why we're talking about post-truth. Again, on the PowerPoint slides I should have had, I had a couple of great images from the covers of Time magazine. You may have seen them. One from 1967, which just had, had the words, Is God Dead? on the front of the magazine. And it was replicated this year, 50 years later, in the same font that just said, Is Truth Dead? And for me, it perfectly sums up putting them two images together. No God equals no truth. No God in society, no value of truth no truth. And the social and psychological effects of this loss of God and the loss of the accompanying Christian framework for truth in the West, it's now being acknowledged beyond the church. 
the Jewish journalist Melanie Phillips observed recently on the reluctance of our post-truth media and politicians to face hard truths about the possible necessity for military action in life sometimes. Now, you may be a pacifist. I'm not arguing. It's a very good theology. But, you know, she said this. It is human nature to shy away from acknowledging reality in order to dodge its unpalatable consequences. Perfect. Jordan Peterson, who is an eminent Canadian psychologist, I don't think he's a Christian, I think he's an atheist, uh, or certainly agnostic, who is ve he's very publicly fighting back against sexualism and he's doing it in the media and on online uh, quite a bit. He takes a bit of stick. But he said this recently, and this is a long quote, but I want to read it in full because it's a perfect summary of uh, the post-truth problem and the psychological effect of post-truth socially. He said this, the truth is something that burns. It burns off dead wood, and people don't like having the dead wood burnt off because they're 95% dead wood. Believe me, I'm not being snide about it. It's no joke. When you start to realize how much of what you've constructed of yourself is based on deception and lies, that's a horrifying realization. It can easily be 95% of you and the things that you say and the things that you act out. He goes on. There's a principle at the heart of Western civilization, the idea of the logos, which means something like a coherent interpersonal communication of the truth. And from an archetypal perspective, it's the action of the logos that extracts order from chaos. We make order by articulating truth, then we inhabit the order. Then he says this. What Christianity did was take that proposition and turn it into a symbolic doctrine, taking the figure of Christ, who from a psychological and archetypal perspective is the ideal man, an image of the ideal, which is the word made flesh, the instantiation of the logos in the body so that it's acted out in the world. It's the fundamental proposition of Western culture and we've lost it and we will not survive without it. These are the words of a non-Christian professor of psychology. That's what's happened to truth today. Okay, are we good? I'm going to just rattle very quickly now through some responses, possible responses, and we will have time, honestly, for you to ask uh, some questions to our host here and not me. Uh, what's a Christian response? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Of truth, not the truth, of truth. So we need to respond because not responding to lies is actually a response in itself. A journalist said this recently about the uh, Church of England Synod's um, machinations about uh, sexuality issues and the fact that they didn't want to do any theology on stuff. They usually do very good theology, but they didn't in this case. He said, truth will re be reduced to what makes people happy. There's no place left for morally demanding discipleship. You can just redefine morality to include whatever gets you through the night. And in light of this challenge, here are some suggested responses to our uh, post-truth context. Number one, obey God. Respect the truth by seeking him, hearing him, doing what he says. We know that obedience is a better than sacrifice. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in 1 John 2 says this, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. This also means that we can and should judge with grace whether people who self-identify as Christians are really Christians at all or not. And we can do this by how they hold to or deviate from the teachings of the Bible. And this is why in John 8 we read, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Bible comes with warnings after warnings about what can happen to the truth. In Acts, we read that even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And, you know, people will follow away. And we read in Galatians, you are running a good race. Who cut in to, uh, on you uh, to keep you from obeying the truth? Obeying the truth is the first responsibility of Christians. And in one piece that he talks about it as a sanctification issue, um, you know, we purify ourselves by obeying the truth. We set the truth forward before everybody. In 3 John, we read this, I have no greater joy to hear, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So to walk in the truth is to try 
and follow God and obey him. It's as simple as that, number one. The second one I would say is to speak the truth. Psalm 15 describes God's people as people who speak the truth from their heart. And the Old Testament was full of, full of oaths about being truthful. Well, we don't need oaths now because we have Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. And that's why he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. We need grace to speak the truth, you know. My father doesn't use grace to speak the truth. He has, he has no filter at all. He just speaks it out. My wife's the same. I'm just going to embarrass you here. Walking past the window, she used to work in fashion, walking past the window recently in Guildford, there's a woman dressing the window, and she just stopped and looked at it and said, my God, what a horrible window. And the woman just looked at her like, and I just thought, well, that's the truth. You know, there you go. It's the truth. <laughs> um, <laughs> we need grace for truth as well sometimes. We should seek the truth as well. We should be people who explore, question, investigate, challenge, pursue, expose, both within and beyond the church. Zechariah 8 says this, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Love truth and peace. Love truth and peace. This is authentic kingdom living. Fourthly, celebrate the truth. Jesus described the devil as the father of all lies, not holding to the truth because there is no truth in him. When we tell the truth, we dispel evil. We overcome evil. Um, and this is really important. I think Christians should try and defend and promote the truth wherever we find it and celebrate those who are truthful or trying to be truthful, uh, perhaps especially even those who aren't Christians who are trying to pursue the truth. We should cheer them on as much as we can. And finally testify to the truth proclaim the gospel the gospel is the ultimate truth claim in human history and we need to get good at making it with confidence clarity moral conviction we're called to speak the truth of the gospel to everyone uh, 1 timothy in 1 timothy 2 4 paul says that god wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth you know and we're called to correctly handle the word of truth that's in 2 Timothy. So be encouraged to talk to people about Jesus. This is how you deal with a post-truth world. You talk about Jesus. I've got some resources here about our Great Commission website at the Evangelical Alliance that's got everything you need to help you with evangelism. Gavin Calvers put it together, who is a mad-for-it evangelist, as you know. It's, it's an excellent resource. Please do make use of it. And I've also got these speak, speak up resources that we've produced so you can know your gospel freedoms in public life. So please know that you are free to speak the truth in public life. You are freer than you probably think you are. We have many freedoms in the UK. I've got hundreds of these. Please take them all. We don't want to take them back with us, do we? So speak the truth in public life. I'll summarize. Truth is important to God. It comes from him. It leads to him. It is him. The idea of post-truth is part of a larger set of problems uh, that relates, I think, to secularism and these other isms. Without God, truth diminishes and distorts socially, and our response to a so-called post-truth world should, I think, include obeying God, speaking the truth, seeking the truth, celebrating the truth, and testifying to the truth that is the risen Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that was fantastic, wasn't it? What an amazing talk. Thank you so much, David. Um, we've got time for some questions. Um, so we'd love for you to kind of stand up if you can. Raise your hand. Stand up with your question. Say it loudly so we can all hear. We'll repeat it because we're being recorded. Um, but we'll start with somebody right at the back if that's okay. Um, is it being taped? Yes, it is being recorded. I don't know yet whether the Q&A part will be part of that or not. Um, I think we'll make the judgment probably at the end. Uh, usually it wouldn't be. David would prefer not. So you're free to ask whatever you like. It won't be recorded. Um, but let's begin with the question. I think we had a question over there. Would you like to stand up and...
Yeah, the name of the professor, uh, the quote that we are 95% dead wood, which I love. Uh, uh, the question was, what was the name of the professor for the quote about us being 95% dead wood? And the name, of the, question, the name of the professor is Jordan Peterson, a Canadian professor of psychology. Okay, who's next? Gentleman over here. So, so the question is all about how, perhaps how do we as Christians know what the truth is with our theological differences, giving an example of hell and different viewpoints on hell. How do we find truth when there are many uh, interpretations of truth, even within our own Christian world? That's, that's probably the killer question, that, isn't it? Uh, let me tell you, as someone who we were, I work for the Evangelical Alliance, and we're obsessive about unity, you know, that, that we might be one, that the world might see that we're one. And the problem with evangelicals is we don't just think we're right, we believe it. And, uh, and that can be a real problem at times. One of, the things, one of the things I think that marks people out who love the truth is the ability to say, I don't know. I don't know, but I think this. And there's a great, this is why Jesus is full of grace and truth, and I think we need to be the same. We need to hold some things lightly, but there is, alongside of that, such a thing as orthodoxy. It exists. There's a, there's a set of ideas that are biblically grounded that most people who are Christians, historically, traditionally, can say, yeah, that's what constitutes Christianity. And that's important. That's an important truth claim in the world. But what we don't know, we just have to, with grace, be relational. And, you know, we really need the Holy Spirit in that as well, I think. Super. Lady here. The question was really all about marriage. What is the kind of, uh, how can we argue for our Christian definition of what we think marriage is, more or less? Yeah. Well, the question was more about, don't, don't let me misquote you here. I'm really good at misquoting people. Um, what, you know, there's a secular view of marriage and there's a Christian view of marriage. There isn't. There isn't a secular view of marriage and there isn't a Christian view of marriage. There's no such thing as Christian marriage. There's marriage. Marriage predates Christianity. Marriage is in Judaism. It's an it's a anthropological fact of human life and history. When you say a secular view of marriage, what you mean is consumerism. There was a book written uh, by two econom economists called Sunstein and Thaler called Nudge that framed David Cameron's worldview. Uh, when he first came into office and he, they created this behavioral sciences unit in the cabinet office to bring this through. And it was full of good ideas. But one of the ideas was um, let's, let's not regulate marriage. The, the penultimate chapter in the book was entitled Privatizing Marriage, right? No one talked about this during the debate. David Cameron privatized marriage. He gave it to the free market so that we can now define it in any way we want. People in the US, a guy's just married his daughter in New Jersey, okay? People can marry buildings, marry a Harley Davidson. It could be said that my father's married to Everton Football Club. I mean, I mean, but you can marry anything, and what it's out there now. Marriage will become whatever people want it to become, but the truth is this, in nature, in biology, and, and, the, and the Bible testifies to this. It's, about a ma it's a union between a man and a woman. There's no, there can't be a union between a woman and a woman or a man and a man. That's not actually dictionary definition, logically, a, a union. It's just what people want now. It's not a union, because a union, right, is, so you know we have a plug and a socket? That's a union. That's a union. You can't, there was a great advert recently, uh, one of these airlines, I think it was, I can't remember which airline it was, the Dutch one, yeah, what a KLM, they tried to promote the gay pride uh, and get, roll in with the big consumer gay pride thing, and they had a set of seatbelt images and say, we, we, we support gay pride, so they had a seatbelt with a socket and a clip, a clip and a clip, and a socket and a socket. And it was picked up on as the best example ever that there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. 
You can't put a socket in a socket or a clip in a clip. It will not save you. It is not a reality. It is a social construction. It is using the language of, po to use the language of the postmodern turn, it is something that is socially constructed for a particular group in this moment in time for political and ideological purposes. And it's my view as well that many of the people who were, um, pr you know, campaigning for uh, the redefinition of marriage, they weren't really concerned about marriage or the gay community. They just found something new that they could get behind that fed the myth of progress in their lives or helped to destroy the place of the Judeo-Christian morality in society further, or further erode that. They weren't really interested in gay people or marriage. That's my view. Uh, just repeat the question again is sort of, um, what is the future battles that we will be facing as a church? Are the issues behind us in the sense the gay battle has happened uh, and is it going to get easier or, or is it going to get harder where Christianity is going to be pushed towards extinction, at least in, in the minds of those who are trying to push it that way? Right, it's a great question. From my perspective, what we see in public policy on a supranational, international and national level in terms of policy um, there is a move to not just privatize faith in this whole sacred-secular divide, but to eradicate certain forms of faith that dissent to this prevailing liberal elite worldview that's based largely on consumerism and largely on sexualism. The, this thing doesn't know where to stop, is what I'm saying. There's a great book by a Jewish journalist called Jonah Goldberg, uh, and the book's entitled Liberal Fascism. And he makes the point quite well and quite humorously that uh, secularism doesn't create fascism. It is fascism. It's what it is. Mussolini was the head of the um, Italian Communist Party for something like 17 years, right? He used to stand outside churches and attack people on, on Sunday and scream at them. And he was just a bully, you know. And but that's what he'd done, and he, he knew his, his focus was Christianity. And then he realized one day, I've been, I've been operating on the basis of um, state fascism when actually national, uh, state socialism, when I should look at national socialism. And he just moved over to a different form of fascism. But it was just a different form of secularism. The Second World War was a war between two secular ideolo ideologies, fascistic ideologies, communism and national socialism. And you know the point. The point I'm trying to say is, there's, from where I see it, there's no point at which we can be, um, at which we can come to a, an agreement on this. If I can just get my phone, I've got a great quote on my phone that I want to show you by a, a chap called David Gushy. David Gushy is a very good theologian in the U.S. who decided a few years ago that he he was in favor of same-sex marriage or marriage equality as he would call it and i've talked with david uh, online a few times uh, and he wrote this recently he went over to the other side and then he was really astonished by how implacably immovable and irrational the other side were he was trying to tell the other side that there are people who've got theologically well thought out views they're not nasty people uh, who have a different view and he says this he says it turns out that you are either for full and unequivocal social and legal equality for LGBT people, or you are against it. And your answer at some, at some point will be revealed. This is true both for individuals and for institutions. Neutrality is not an option. Neither is polite half-acceptance, nor is avoiding the subject. Hide as you might, the issue will come and find you. And I think it's very revealing uh, from someone who's actually... He, be he believes gay there's nothing wrong with gay marriage, um, to say something like that. And I also see evidence of historical revisionism, the, the actual history of Christianity. One of the greatest untold stories in our culture is what evangelicals done in the 19th century and the 18th century, just reject building cities, regenerating. We basically built the state, which was secularized in the 20th century for good and ill. But Nobody wants to talk about this, the story, the, the influence of Christianity. And a couple of years ago, we had the 500th anniversary of Magna Carta. Now, you know, Magna Carta was written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was an expert on the book of Deuteronomy. It was based on the book of Deuteronomy. And most of it was about the church 
and the Bible. That's Magna Carta. Did you hear that in the celebrations a couple of years ago? The point is we're trying, people are trying to airbrush us out of history. There's a battle going on today about yesterday for tomorrow. If you can change history, you can change the direction we're going into the future. So on, on you know, past, present and future, we've got to contend. There's no sitting back from this. There's no neutral, you know, halfway house. We should be engaging with people who disagree with us, but we should be engaging with people who disagree with us on the basis that it's okay to disagree. And there are people out there like that. There are, there are authentic people, secularists, atheists, and people of other religions who we can work with, but they are few in number. <laughs> I'll do my best to try and explain that, but uh, I think the question is saying um, that is it right to approach the subject of truth by trying to syncretize or blend two thoughts and two positions on the subject of truth to reach one whole? Is that a right way forward? Well, I could, I could say an easy answer. What does, what does light have to do with darkness? But alongside of that, we're, in the, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. What we, what we talk about in the Evangelical Alliance when we talk about our public policy work and encouraging Christians to do good in society, to be salt and to be light, is to be distinctive. We, we're not, you know, you can argue about this, whether we're a Christian nation or ever have been or really want to be. We, we're to, we talk about seeing a plural public square. That's a public square with people with lots of different identities and ideas. But we want to... We want to posit ours from a distinctive, a distinctively Christian perspective. And I think when we lose our distinctiveness, it's like Jesus said, when the salt loses its saltiness, it's no good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled on by men. I understand what Schaefer was saying. I'm a big Schaefer fan. And I, I wish Schaefer could have lived another 10 years to sort of absorb the, the, the literature around post-modernity and to develop some critiques into that, I, I think it would have been brilliant, but he didn't, and we are where we are. Um, but syncretism, I mean, to one level, we need to be relevant to the world, but I do think on a church level, sometimes we make relevance an idol. And I think what, even in a postmodern world, what people really look for, what people really want is authenticity, and that relates to the truth. We don't need to kill people with the truth, but we do need to live truthfully, even when it costs us. Um, and we are trying to work with the UCCF at the moment, by the way, um, on a number of things. Yes, yeah. Thanks. So, so the question was about the Wilkinson House report, which is a report on the uh, the international dimensions of LGBT um, ideology and how it needs to be incorporated and how dissenting views need to be crushed. Basically, I think it's the language it uses. Um, well, I mean, my view on that, and I've got colleagues who disagree, is my view is it's so off the wall that we should. there are some things we should kind of ignore. I might be wrong about that, but that is so extreme, that document. It is so militantly, fascistically full-on that I'm sure there are many people in the LGBT community who would just, like, brook at that. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. That said, e-petitions are always good to sign, and uh, I do think, you know, we've got this strange phenomenon, haven't we, how Christians engage in public life on a lot of these hot topics. We either bury our heads in the sands like ostriches and just, or do la-la theology. That's sticking your fingers in your ears and going, la-la-la, it's not happening, la-la-la. Well, it is happening. Uh, because, and then when we talk about these sexuality issues, because we don't link them to truth and idolatry and we don't find a language that explains that and explains our distinctiveness and what we want and how we want to live and raise our families and have our schools and stuff, because we don't find a language to convey that, we can be portrayed as bigots and homophobic and stuff like that. So I do think we need to find a language, not to put our heads in the sand and not also go the other route, the way which is like the militant sort of fight against everyone everywhere at all times and take a stand i still don't know what take a stand means i mean what does that mean take a stand well, say something truthful even though you know it's going to cause more trouble because it makes you feel better i don't know I, I i just think we've we've got to fear not and we've got to engage confidently and trust god but we've got to contend for every single one of these truths because you know, to come back to the other question before about what does the future hold, um, 
our children, the, sec- the SRE stuff, the sex relationships education stuff that's being uh, proposed at this moment in time, the new truth regime wants our children and our grandchildren. And you can't just sit back and kind of accept that. On one level, we've got to become more animators, we've got to get more courage, and we've got to get more involved, but we've got to do it in the right way, in the right tone. Um, I just I know there's a, a number of people who've got questions. I'm sure David will be around afterwards, but I, I just want to ask him two more questions before we have a short time of prayer, if that's okay. M- my first question is, and it, it may be a little bit controversial after what we've heard so far in this conference, but how could you could you put some more flesh on the bones of how we might engage? Um, is there value in writing to our our MP? Um, is there how do we engage with e-petitions or the boss at work who has a different view from us on some of these moral issues? Is it more of a one-to-one friendship conversation how would you encourage us to really be truth to speak truth to embody truth in these situations thank you we're putting together a resource that's going to be launched in september called what kind of society now what we've realized is bible believing christians we know what we're against and what we don't like and other people know what we're against and what we don't like and these are very real challenges and we shouldn't duck them but we need to get better at pro- you know, casting a vision for society, at saying, this is what we want, this is why we want it, and this is why it would be good for everyone. It's not just about us. It's, you know, Os Guinness says, we, we often talk about justice, but what we really mean is just us. And, and we, need, we need a vision that's beyond the church that we can show and prove is good for everyone. So we've picked four themes there, justice, love, freedom, and truth. Truth is one of them. Um, and how, you know what kind of, what, how do you want to see truth in society? You want to see a truthful society. What does a loving society look like? And it's just a conversation starter, and we we want to do that. I've forgotten your question. Uh, oh, in terms of pra- in terms of practical stuff on a policy level, yes, write to your MP. Even better, invite your MP to your church to meet you guys and to to see the amazing work that you're all doing in your communities. Tell your stories. Pray for them. Invite them in. Don't make any demands on them. And just love them and pray for them. It's, it's so powerful. I worked in Parliament for 10 years. I oversaw the all-party all uh, Christian group there for 10 years for Bible Society. And I'll tell you right now, non-Christian MPs and Christian MPs are bowled over when people don't make demands on them or try and grab stuff off them. Uh, it makes a huge impact. So be a blessing to your local councillors and to your MPs and also as well get you know make connections with your local media you know get to know people in the media and challenge untruths don't let an untruth go past you in a conversation do not do not let this happen even if you're not sure about it ask questions and engage in a conversation but don't let something fly past without graciously writing a letter or saying hold on a minute can we talk about that because I'm not sure that's right that's great. And how should we pray? We believe that prayer changes the world. God answers prayer. How do we pray into this whole theme of truth and standing firm for truth in our society? Um, I, think, I think the first prayer is around God's people. and For God's people to be the pillar and foundation of truth in the earth. For God's people to be a light to the nations, light and salt in our communities. You know, you can't be light if there's darkness in there. You need to be, light needs to be light. So if we can pray that the church gets a renewed confidence, is encouraged to speak the truth of the gospel, to talk to people about Jesus as the truth, the revealed truth of God, uh, then that's a start. And also for people to be, uh, for the church to, uh, pray for the church to raise up public leaders, voices in our communities and in our nations. We have, it just so happens, he says, plugging, a wonderful course called Change the World, a four-week course that any church can do to just talk about what does it mean to for God's kingdom to come locally. God wants people to be saved, but he also wants to demonstrate the kingdom now so that people just want to join in. We're just showing the goodness of God in the land of the living. And this is really, really important. We've got a big commitment to public leadership over the next 30 years. And there's a lot of resources that I would encourage you to engage with on that as well. Please pray for that.
I'd really like us just to do a, f- a few minutes just in, in pairs or in threes, just praying into what David has shared. Um, we've heard from Terry so wonderfully the importance and power of prayer. Uh, and it'd be great to pray for truth in our nation on these issues where, where it's, you know, the rubber is hitting the road of, of sex, gender, marriage. That, that's the kind of big picture. But in our own lives, are we, are, we are, are we speaking the truth? Are we living the truth? Are we letting little white lies go? Are we, are we being dishonest in our relationships with other people? We want to be a people of truth. So be pillars of truth, be salt and light when it comes to truth. So maybe just take a few moments to, to meet and greet the people around you and just pray with them into what David has shared. And then we'll wrap up and close in a moment. If you haven't drawn your prayers to a close already, if you could do so, I'll just, I'll just pray. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful time together. Lord, we just thank you so much that you have revealed truth to us. We thank you that you came to demonstrate and show us truth, that we might follow you in your way. And so be truth to our world. God, give us courage. Give us the strength. Give us the integrity not to let a lie and untruth go past us, whatever it may be, that we would want to speak the truth with love. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Well, can we just give a big round of applause to David again? Thank him so much. It's fantastic.